Chapter 17 of The Defiant Agents by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Defiant Agents. Chapter 17 There were ten of them riding on small, wiry step ponies, men and women both, and well armed. Travis recalled it was the custom of the horde that the women fought as warriors when necessary. Menlik, there was no mistaking the flapping robe of their leader. And they were singing. The rider behind the shaman thumped with violent energy a drum fastened beside his saddle-horn, its heavy boom-boom the same call the Apache had heard before. The Mongols were working themselves into the mood for some desperate effort, Travis deduced, and if they were too deeply under the red spell there would be no arguing with them. He could wait no longer. The Apache swung down from a ledge near the valley gate, moved into the open and stood waiting, the alien weapon resting across his forearm. If necessary, he intended to give a demonstration with it for an object lesson. Dar Ugar! The war cry which had once awakened fear across a quarter of Terra, thin here and from only a few throats, but just as menacing. Two of the horsemen aimed lances, preparing to ride him down. Travis sighted a tree midway between them and pressed a firing button. This time there was a flash, a flicker of light, to mark the disappearance of a living thing. One of the lancer's ponies reared, squealed in fear. The other kept on his course. Manlik, Travis shouted. Hold up your man! I do not want to kill! The shaman called out, but the lancer was already level with the vanished tree his head half turned on his shoulders to witness the blackened earth where it had stood. Then he dropped his lance, sawed on the reins. A rifle-bullet might not have halted his charge unless it killed or wounded, but what he had just seen was a thing beyond his understanding. The tribesmen sat their horses, facing Travis, watching him with the feral eyes of the wolves they claimed as forefathers, wolves that possessed the cunning of the wild, cunning enough not to rush Breakneck into unknown danger. Travis walked forward. Menlik, I would talk. There was an outburst from the horsemen, protest from Hulagur and one or two of the others, but the shaman urged his mount into a walking pace toward the Apache, until they stood only a few feet from each other, the warrior of the steppes and the horde facing the warrior of the desert and the people. You have taken a woman from our yurts," Menlik said, but his eyes were more on the alien gun than on the man who held it. Brave are you to come again into our land. He who sets foot in the stirrup must mount into the saddle. He who draws blade free of the scabbard must be prepared to use it. The horde is not here. I see only a handful of people," Travis replied. Does Menlik propose to go up against the Apache so? Yet there are those who are his greater enemies. A stealer of women is not such a one as needs a regiment under a general to face him." Suddenly Travis was impatient of the ceremonious talking. There was so little time. "'Listen, and listen well, shaman,' he spoke curtly now. "'I have not your woman. She is already crossing the mountains southward he pointed with his chin, leading the Reds into a trap. Would Menlik believe him? 
There was no need, Travis decided, to tell him now that Cadessa's part in this affair was involuntary. "'And you?' the shaman asked the question the Apache had hoped to hear. "'We,' Travis emphasized that, "'march now against those hiding behind in their ship out there.' He indicated the northern plains. Mendick raised his head, surveying the land about them with disbelieving, contemptuous appraisal. "'You are chief, then, of an army? An army equipped with magic to overcome machines?' "'One needs no army when he carries this.' For the second time Travis displayed the power of the weapon he carried, this time cutting into shifting rubble an outcrop of cliff-wall. Menlis' expression did not change, though his eyes narrowed. The shaman signaled his small company, and they dismounted. Travis was heartened by this sign that Menlik was willing to talk. The Apache made a similar gesture, and Jilly and Buck, their own weapons well in sight, came out to back him. Travis knew that the Tatar had no way of knowing that the three were alone. He well might have believed an unseen troop of Apaches were nearby and so armed. "'You would talk, then talk,' Menlik ordered. This time Travis outlined events with an absence of word embroidery. "'Cadessa leads the Reds into a trap we have set beyond the peaks. Four of them ride with her. How many now remain in the ship near the settlement?' "'There are at least two in the flyer, perhaps eight more in the ship. But there is no getting at them in there.' "'No?' Travis laughed softly, shifted the weapon on his arm. "'Do you not think that this will crack the shell of that nut so that we can get at the meat?' Menlik's eyes flickered to the left, to the tree which was no longer a tree, but a thin deposit of ash on seared ground. They can control us with the caller, as they did before. If we go up against them, then we are once more gathered into their net, before we reach their ship. That is true for you of the Horde. It does not affect the people, Travis returned. And suppose we burn out their machines. Then will you not be free? To burn up a tree? Lightning from the skies can do that. Can lightning? Buck asked softly, also make rock as sand of the river? Menlik's eyes turned to the second example of the alien weapon's power. Give us proof that this will act against their machines. What proof, shaman? asked Jilly. Shall we burn down a mountain that you may believe? This is now a matter of time. Travis had a sudden inspiration. You say that the copter is out. Suppose we use that as a target. That? That can sweep the flyer from the sky? Menlik's disbelief was open. Travis wondered if he had gone too far, but they needed to rid themselves of that spying flyer before they dared to move out into the plain, and to use the destruction of the helicopter as an example would be the best proof he could give of the invincibility of the new Apache arms. Under the right conditions? He replied stoutly, Yes. And those conditions? Menlik demanded. That it must be brought within range, say, below the level of a neighboring peak where a man may lie in wait to fire. Silent Apaches faced silent Mongols. 
and Travis had a chance to taste what might be defeat. But the helicopter must be taken before they advanced toward the ship and the settlement. "'And, maker of traps, how do you intend to bait this one?' Menlik's question was an open challenge. "'You know these Reds better than we,' Travis counterattacked. "'How would you bait it, son of the Blue Wolf?' You say Kedessa is leading the Red South. We have but your word for that," Menlik replied. Though how it would profit you to lie on such a matter, he shrugged. If you do speak the truth, then the copter will circle about the foothills where they entered. And what would bring the pilot nosing farther in? the Apache asked. Menlik shrugged again. Any manner of things. The Reds have never ventured too far south. They are suspicious of the heights, with good cause." His fingers near the hilt of his tulwar twitched. Anything which might suggest that the party is in difficulty would bring them in for a closer look. "'Say, a fire, with much smoke?' Jill Lee suggested. Menlik spoke over his shoulder to his own party. There was a babble of answer, two or three of the men raising their voices above those of their companions. If set in the right direction, yes," the shaman conceded. When do you plan to move, Apaches? At once. But they did not have wings, and the cross-country march they had to make was a rough journey on foot. Travis at once stretched into night hours filled with scrambling over rocks and an early morning of preparations, with always the threat that the helicopter might not return to fly its circling mission over the scene of operations. All they had was Menlik's assurance that while any party of the Red Overlords was away from their well-defended base, the flyer did just that. "'Might be relaying messages on from a walkie-talkie or something like that,' Buck commented. "'They should reach our ship in two days, three at the most, if they are pushing,' Travis said thoughtfully. "'It would be a help, if that flyer is a link in any comm unit, to destroy it before its crew picks up and relays any report of what happens back there." Jill Lee grunted. He was surveying the heights above the pocket in which Menlik and two of the Mongols were piling brush. There, there, and there. The Apache's chin made three juts. If the pilot swoops for a quick look, our crossfire will take out his blades. They held a last conference with Menlik and then climbed to the perches Jill Lee had selected. Sentries on lookout reported by mirror flash that Soe, Decle, Lupi, and Nolan were now on the move to join the other three Apaches. If and when Manolito's trap closed its jaws on the Reds at its western ship, the news would pass and the Apaches would move out to storm the enemy fort on the prairie. And should they blast any caller the helicopter might carry? Menlik and his riders would accompany them. There it was, just as Menlik had foretold. The wasp from the open country was flying into the hills. Menlik, on his knees, struck flint to steel, sparking the fire they hoped would draw the pilot to a closer investigation. The brush caught, and smoke, thick and white, came first in separate puffs, and then gathered into murky pillar to form a signal no one could overlook. In Travis' hands the grip of the gun was slippery. He rested the end of the barrel on the rock, curbing his rising tension as best he could. 
to escape any caller on the flyer, the Tatars had remained in the valley below the Apache's outlook, and as the helicopter circled in, Travis sighted two men in its cockpit, one wearing a helmet identical to the one they had seen on the Red Hunter days ago. The Red's long, undisputed sway over the Mongol forces would make them overconfident. Travis thought that, even if they sighted one of the waiting Apaches, they would not take warning until too late. Menlik's brush-fire was performing well, and the flyer was heading straight for it. The machine buzzed the smoke once, too high for the Apaches to trust raying its blades. Then the pilot came back in a lower sweep, which carried him only yards above the smoldering brush, on a level with the snipers. Travis pressed the button on the barrel, his target the fast-whirling blades. Momentum carried the helicopter on, but at least one of the marksmen, if not all three, had scored. The machine plowed through the smoke to crack up beyond. Was their caller working, bringing the Mongols to aid the Reds trapped in the wreck? Travis watched Menlik make his way toward the machine, reach the cracked cover of the cockpit. But in the shaman's hand was a bare blade on which the sun glinted. The Mongol wrenched open the sprung door, thrust inward with the tulwar, and the howl of triumph he voiced was as wordless and wild as a wolf's. More Mongols flooding down, Hulagur, a woman, centering on the helicopter. This time a spear plunged into the interior of the broken flyer. Payment was being extracted for long slavery. The Apaches dropped from the heights, waiting for Menlik to leave the wild scene. Hulagur had dragged out the body of the helmeted man and the Mongols were stripping off his equipment, smashing it with rocks, still howling their war-cry. But the shaman came to the dying smudge-fire to meet the Apaches. He was smiling, his upper lip raised in a curve suggesting the victory purr of a snow-tiger, and he saluted with one hand. "'There are two who will not trap men again. We believe you now, Andas comrades of battle, when you say you can go up against their fort and make it as nothing." Hulagur came up behind the shaman, a modern automatic in his hand. He tossed the weapon into the air, caught it again, laughing, disclaiming something in his own language. "'From the serpents we take two fangs,' Menlik translated. "'These weapons may not be as dangerous as yours, but they can bite deeper, quicker and with more force than our arrows." It did not take the Mongols long to strip the helicopter and the Reds of what they could use, deliberately smashing all the other equipment which had survived the wreck. They had accomplished one important move. The link between the southbound exploring party and the Red headquarters, if that was the role the helicopter had played, was now gone and the eyes operating over the open territory of the plains had ceased to exist. The attacking war party could move against the ship near the Red Settlement, knowing they had only controlled Mongol scouts to watch for, and to penetrate enemy territory under those conditions was an old, old game the Apaches had played for centuries. While they waited for the signals from the peaks, a camp was established and a Mongol dispatched to bring up the rest of the outlaws and all extra mounts. Menlik carried to the Apaches a portion of the dried meat which had been transported horde-fashion, under the saddle to soften it for eating. "'We do not skulk any longer like rats or city-men in dark holes,' 
he told them. This time we ride, and we shall take an accounting from those out there. A fine accounting. They still have other controllers, Travis pointed out. And you have that which is an answer to all their machines, blazed Menlik in return. They will send against us your own people if they can, Buck warned. Menlik pulled at his upper lip. That is also truth. But now they have no eyes in the sky, and with so many of their men away they will not patrol too far from camp. I tell you, Andas, with these weapons of yours a man could rule a world." Travis looked at him bleakly. Which is why they are taboo. Taboo? Menlik repeated. In what manner are these forbidden? Do you not carry them openly, use them as you wish? Are they not weapons of your own people?" Travis shook his head. These are the weapons of dead men, if we can name them men at all. These we took from a tomb of the star race, who held topaz when our world was only a hunting ground of wild men wearing the skins of beasts and slaying mammoths with stone spears. They are from a tomb and are cursed, a curse we took upon ourselves with their use. There was a strange light deep in the shaman's eyes. Travis did not know who or what Menlik had been before the Red Conditioner had returned him to the role of Horde shaman. He might have been a technician or a scientist, and deep within him some remnants of that training could now be dismissing everything Travis said as fantastic superstition. Yet in another way the Apache spoke the exact truth. There was a curse on these weapons on every bit of knowledge gathered in that warehouse of the towers. As Menlik had already noted, that curse was power, the power to control Topaz, and then perhaps to reach back across the stars to Terra. When the shaman spoke again his words were a half-whisper. It will take a powerful curse to keep these out of the hands of men. With the reds gone or powerless, Buck asked, what need will anyone have for them? And if another ship comes from the skies, to begin all over again? To that we shall have an answer also, if and when we must find it," Travis replied. That could well be true. Other weapons in the warehouse powerful enough to pluck a spaceship out of the sky, but they did not have to worry about that now. Arms from a tomb, yes. This is truly dead men's magic. I shall say so to my people. When do we move out? When we know whether or not the trap to the south is sprung," Buck answered. The report came an hour after sunrise the next morning, when Tsoe, Nolan, and Decklay pattered into camp. The war chief made a slight gesture with one hand. It is done? Travis wanted confirmation in words. It is done. The Pindalik Oyi entered the ship eagerly. Then they blew it and themselves up. Manolito did his work well. And Kedessa? The woman is safe. When the Reds saw the ship, they left their machine outside to hold their captive. That mechanical collar was easily destroyed. She is now free, and with the Mba'a she comes across the mountains, Manolito and Eskelta with her also. Now, he looked from his own people to the Mongols. 
Why are you here with these?" "'We wait, but the waiting is over,' Julie said. "'Now we go north.'" End of chapter 17